0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another uh, exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast, uh, which is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media, the new uh, media platform company thingamabob that uh, me, Steve Hayes, and Toby Stock have started. And you can sign up for it at thedispatch.com. Get David French's newsletter, the G-File, the Morning Dispatch, and many more products to come soon. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Untucket. We'll hear more about them shortly, and we have returning, uh, very quick turnaround. We'll have to check the record books about how fast a turnaround, uh, return visit this is. Uh, our uh, my friend and AEI colleague Adam White, welcome back to the Remnant.
1: Well, it's good to be back. You can you can't stop me. You can only hope to contain me.
0: <laughs> um, and so one of the reasons why we wanted to have you here is there's 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 this is sort of an impeachment 101 episode. We may have some tangents that we have to deal with, but impeachment's heating up. You're like a law guy with like a belt and everything, right? Um, that's what Troy – I think it was Troy McClure in The Simpsons says. I'm not one of those fancy lawyers who wears belts. <laughs>
2: um,
1: but uh, – I thought you were going to say uh, – who's the lawyer?
0: The, 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 oh, Lionel, no, it's Lionel, Lionel Hutz.
1: That's why you're the judge and I'm the law talking guy. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was
0: – Troy McClure, same voice, different – guy, he's the Hollywood actor, right. who at one point, when Homer says, I know your terrible secret, you're gay, and he yells, gay?
1: I wish! <laughs> they don't have a word for what I am. <laughs> All
2: right,
1: so- well, You with, might you might know me from such podcasts as Impeachment 101. That's right. There we go. Or,
0: or Zinc and You, Partners in Freedom, uh, which was one of the Troy McClure after-school <laughs> specials. Um, we're not old or anything. Um, so- impeachment stuff. Yeah. I don't have a precise roadmap of how I want to get into this, but I'm going to ask you a few questions that have been just bugging the hell out of me and then we can take it from there. Yeah. The Republicans, our friends, the Republicans have been saying that they don't have to comply with impeachment subpoenas and work with the impeachment process because this is a sham process. Your position is that it's a politically problematic thing, but it's not a constitutional Sham thing. Why don't you just sort of lay
1: out your your perspective on on all of it? Well, sure. And the way you introduced me is actually a, a good place to start. You said I'm the law guy. Uh-huh. I think mean, one of the dangers in talking about impeachment is taking it too legalistically, mm-hmm. right? Our, our our colleague Gary Schmidt once told the New York Times the Constitution is too important to leave it to the lawyers, right? And this is a classic example of that. The Constitution is law, obviously. It has procedures of a sort for impeachment. I mean, very minimal. Most of it is left to the branches to sort out for themselves. And the ultimate standard at issue, high crimes and misdemeanors and so on, that's a definitely a legal standard. It's there in the law. But it's not the kind of thing that courts have chewed on. It's not the kind of thing that's susceptible to sort of easy, sort of straightforward interpretation by anybody, it ultimately opens up some political questions, which is not to say that it's just anything goes. Mm -hmm. You often hear people say, well, impeachment is whatever the... An impeachable offense is whatever the Senate says it is. I guess that's true in a sense, but it shouldn't be true, right? The, The term high crimes and misdemeanors, it's a higher standard than just... Well, let me put it this way. If presidents could be impeached for anything the Senate wanted to have them impeached for, the Constitution would just say presidents can be impeached. Mm-hmm. The framers put a term in there, and we got to take it seriously, but take it seriously in the right way, which is thinking about sort of the role of the president and the duties of the president.
0: Right. But in the other sense, it is whatever Congress decides, because it, it's not like the Supreme Court is going to review this, right? Right. So – That's true. It's whatever – it's Whatever the legislature can get away with is ultimately, for good or for ill, intellectually dishonest, politically uh, ill-advised or not, if the House votes to impeach and the Senate votes to to remove, that's unreviewed. I mean, President Trump at one point said he would appeal
1: any impeachment to the Supreme Court, which is not a thing, right? Yeah, that's just buffoonery. Ultimately, the only place that's going to sit in review of the House and Senate's work— Is the people and the judgment of history
0: right, right? And part of your argument, which I totally agree with, is that the way the Democrats have been handling—we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon—to date, the way the Democrats have been handling this has been legal and constitutional, but not very statesmanlike and not politically very well advised. Right? Is that fair
1: to say how you come down on it? Right. I thought that the way that the House Democrats started things and then the way the White House Counsel's office. Uh, reacted, Mm -hmm. was just the worst possible example of how this could play out. It's true the House is not bound to certain requirements of cross-examination or other forms of due process the White House is calling for. It's it's not required. It would be a good thing for them to do something along those lines or allow some form of transparency if they want their process and the outcome in the House to be taken seriously, not as a set of allegations, but as a meaningful judgment. Mm -hmm. And when the White House counsel's office replied with that letter that began with legalistic, legal arguments saying the president was entitled to certain measures of due process and cross-examination because it had been done before and that to not do that now somehow delegitimizes the process, they're going too far there. It's just one of those examples where everybody seems to sort of retreat to the corners and hire the lawyers um, I think actually now the way things seem to be playing out, where the House is going to have some sort of resolution um, describing what they're looking into, the process by which they're going to go forward. And as I understood it, the House said they're not going to newly authorize the inquiry so much as they're going to sort of ratify what they've done and keep going forward. I think that's a good thing. And I think it would be good for members of the House among Republicans and the White House to, to lean into this and to comply and to really engage the process.
0: Right. So a friend of mine sent me this email, um, full disclosure, someone who works for me sent me this email, and um, wanted me to ask you, he says, reading from an email, Dems haven't wanted to concede the point that they will need to take a vote to authorize impeachment, and their argument was buttressed by a federal court ruling last week. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, Pelosi stressed yesterday that this was not a vote to authorize. Right. So is this move merely counter optics to take away a Republican gripe or does it additionally signal movement away from the preliminary secret hearing process and towards open hearings as Schiff has promised will happen eventually? Will the Trump administration be permitted more access to these hearings at that point?
1: Well, I think it's a move in the right direction, whether they're doing it because their hand is forced that they think that the people are sort of demanding this now. I don't know. I guess that's just sort of the invisible hand of politics having its way. Um, But for whatever reason that they're doing it, I'm glad they're doing it. I don't think they're required to do it. But I think it's good. And I think the reason why it was good that previous impeachments proceeded this way, I think it's good that the House signals up front that the full House, the weight of the full House is behind this process, which could matter for subpoena fights in court. But also they specify where this is going, which committees and ideally specifies some kind of of process, although we'll see what's in there. That's all a good thing to signal to all of us what to expect and to signal to the committees what they ought to be doing. I mean, this can't just be a free-ranging, every committee for itself approach. Laying down some sort of expectations about how this will go is a good thing. Okay, so so
0: factual things. There, There are a whole bunch of things in this that I've been, like, embarrassed not to know occasionally. Like, I actually had to ask a friend of mine to a couple of journalist friends of mine who follow this stuff closely, whether the whether it was true that Republicans were actually locked out of these committee hearings, because that's the way the Republicans make it sound. And it turned out that was a... It's weird. It's like all of a sudden the Republicans are better at blatant, deceptive political spin stuff than the Democrats are, mm-hmm. which is like not my experience growing up, you know. But so like one of the questions I got is is, according to Republicans... They don't have to comply with the subpoenas because this is a sham process, right? right. Are impeachment subpoenas any more powerful? Do you have any other legal standing than any other committee subpoena?
1: No. I, I mean maybe in some very small way they would. There's been a fight in the courts a bit over subpoenas and questions about whether Congress – whether the, the subpoenas were pursuant to a legitimate legislative purpose. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that there is now or there will be perhaps – a, a a publicly authorized impeachment process that puts the full weight of the House behind. There's now no doubt that these subpoenas are, in fact, rooted in the impeachment power, which is a legitimate power of the House. So that that's really the only difference I see. But I wouldn't make more of it than that. You know, one of the points I try to make in a piece I wrote for The Bulwark recently is – We have this collision of expressed constitutional powers, but also unwritten constitutional powers. Everybody kind of takes for granted, especially the folks in the House right now, they say, we have our oversight power. It's our constitutional power. It's not really in the Constitution. They have legislative powers, impeachment powers. The oversight powers have always just been sort of a gloss on or or sort of an inference we draw from those express powers. Sort of like judicial review, right? (laughs) Or sort of like uh, executive privilege. Yeah. Right. That's what I was trying to get at in this piece is people seemed – a lot of people, proponents of impeachment, seem to treat the oversight powers as something concrete and the executive privilege as something made up. When they're both important inferences we've sort of drawn through history from these express powers, whether it's impeachment power, whether it's the executive power, whatever, it's a collision of explicit powers and also a collision of implicit powers. And there's just no real rules for the road. The courts have intervened somewhat in subpoena fights. It'll be interesting to see how this, how far this goes, if it goes back up to the Supreme Court as it did in the Nixon years. But there's just really not a whole lot of doctrinal meat on the bones in Supreme Court precedent. In fact, about a year ago, Stuart Taylor and I did a piece for the late Great Weekly Standard sort of outlining how limited and bare bones even the old Supreme Court precedents from the 70s really are mm-hmm. and how people have spent 40 years just sort of putting their own glosses on these very minimalistic precedents. I mean, important precedents, but Limited,
0: Right. But so, like, my point is, like, I, a week ago, I was muttering to the TV, why can't I get my CineMax subscription renewed? No, I was muttering to the TV when the White House refuses to comply with these subpoenas. If it had just been from the House Oversight Committee or from the House Intelligence Committee, the subpoenas still have power, right? I mean, so, I mean, it's not like... So it was just basically a political ploy to say because this
1: was not an actual legislative purpose because it wasn't impeachment? Yeah, they they all have power. But the question is how much – I'll put it this way. There's no doubt that when Congress subpoenas members of the public, the Supreme Court has said time and time again, people have to comply with those. Subpoenas from one branch of government to another raise fundamentally different questions. Mm -hmm. And it's true that, yeah, the House subpoenas have power. But how much power against an executive when the president is asserting privilege and the people who work for him are willing to abide by that invocation of privilege? That's just really untested waters. There's been a couple of lower court cases. This came up a little bit in the Bush administration, um, but you know, on the very first day or so of the of the new Congress in in uh, the beginning of the year, I did a different piece for the Bulwark saying. That what was the headline. they put a great headline on it? They said, ready for aggressive house oversight, not so fast, not so furious. And I sort of hearkened back to the way that Holder mm-hmm. and Lois Lerner just openly defied house subpoenas right. and won political points for it. Right. Um there's just real practical limits on how on what a house can do to enforce its subpoenas short of defunding government. Mm-hmm or impeaching for the failure to comply with subpoenas.
0: Right. I mean, so that's – I guess that's what would make an impeachment inquiry subpoena <clears throat> more powerful is that you can do one of these catch-all failure to comply with the subpoena as a, uh, in a bill of impeachment or whatever you call it, um, uh, article of impeachment. Yep. All right, so that raises another dumb question on my part. Um, if you work for the White House or you work for the executive branch, whatever, and – the president says you cannot testify because of executive privilege and this is privileged communication between me and you, blah, 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 blah. How legally binding is
1: that order? What is the punishment if you defy that? Yeah, I'm probably getting out of my skis on this one. But as I understand it, the president just invoking privilege doesn't legally bind you to not testify. Mm-hmm. You might lose your job, if but there's go, no law if, saying you violated
0: executive privilege,
1: right? If you were if you were going to go testify to things that are classified, sure, all those statutes would apply. It's basically, as I understand it, been a situation where, by and large, members of the executive branch and former members of the executive branch usually are willing to sort of abide by the president's orders. Not always. And as I understand it, we're seeing an example of this today. Right? right. where A bunch of people have done it. They've been told.
0: I mean, what's his face? Uh, Taylor yeah. is our highest ranking diplomat in Ukraine. And he went and testified. And this guy Vinman today is testifying. And yeah. he's still right. he's a uniformed officer. His commander in chief said, you're not supposed to do it. And he's like doing it
1: anyway. Yeah. And the really crazy part of it when President Trump goes on Twitter and says, can't somebody do something about this? Right. <laughs> they should investigate this. Yeah. Impeach, so, impeach that man.
0: So it's someone who works for the president is told, do not testify, do not cooperate, and he cooperates anyway,
1: the legal sanction there is basically just losing your job? Right. Unless there's some other statute right mm-hmm. the classification statute. That's my understanding of it. But this is I am a poor country lawyer, so I don't want to overstate <laughs> my expertise here. We really I wish we could get unfrozen caveman lawyer in
0: here. Yeah. Right, so I know you have to go to these fancy parties with these law guys and talk law stuff and it's all collegial and all of that. But I'm on record saying that um, every time Alan Dershowitz takes Viagra, he gets call, gets taller. Um, I'm not a big fan of Alan Dershowitz. I wasn't a fan of his in the last impeachment brouhaha either. He has made an argument that has been echoed by some people I like more. And he made this case in the Wall Street Journal that, first of all, he really hates the fact that it is a political process, the impeachment thing. And so he tries to impose uh, legalisms on it in, in – aggressive ways. Yeah. And he, he makes the case that Madison would never have impeached Trump or voted to impeach Trump. And part of his argument is, is that you cannot uh, be impeached for exercising your constitutional power. And right. that argument does not make sense
1: to me. Right. What do you think of it? Well, I will say, by the way, Dershowitz was one of my first law professors and one of my absolute favorites. Really? I'm not a fan of what he's doing right now. I just disagree with him. But remember, He's not even one of the sort of D.C. type lawyers who's in these political fights. He's a criminal defense lawyer. What right. he does is turn everything into a legal fight. Right. I just don't agree. I just don't agree with his argument that you can't impeach a president for using his constitutional powers. In fact, I think our colleague Ramesh Pranur just pointed this out in a piece the other day. Yeah. That One of the examples that maybe even Madison himself identified yeah. was if a president were to pardon people for crimes in his defense.
0: Right. So, uh, the, the, what Ramesh pointed out is that <coughs> Madison had said – if the president urges an underling to commit a crime yeah. and then promises to pardon them for the crime, that would be
1: impeachable. Right. Right. Now, one of the things they did talk about when they wrote the, the provision into the Constitution was as they're picking the terminology, there was concern that just something as ordinary as maladministration, bad administration would be impeachable. If that were the case, Madison said, we're just turning this into a parliamentary government mm-hmm. um, and we need to avoid that. So they created the higher standard of high crimes and, and misdemeanors. Um, So it means something more than just the bad bad use of presidential power. But I don't think it excludes any kind of misuse of presidential power. Indeed, I think that's the reason – I think that's one of the sort of the, the safety valves for our framework is the fact that a president might, using the powers at his disposal, do something for which he can't be prosecuted because it is an assertion of his powers, but it rises to a level of malfeasance so great that he could be impeached. Right. It's not just... It's, it's not High crimes and misdemeanors doesn't mean just crimes, and it doesn't mean all crimes, right? Criminal jaywalking or something mm-hmm. might not be impeachable. Um, but it's something higher than just maladministration. That's the challenge then, right? Is trying to come up with standards in a political environment, not in a court of law, I don't think there's any real... I think originalism only gets you so far here. and trying to come up with what that higher standard is. Because it's something more than just, like I said before, something more than just whatever the Senate wants to impeach you for on a a Tuesday. Right. And and
0: so just... Or what the House wants to. For listeners who didn't get the point about Madison's thing about pardoning, the point is is that the president has really broad pardon powers. Unrevocable, unquestionable for federal crimes. Right. And yet Madison considered... Using that constitutional authority for illegitimate ends would still be impeachable, right? Right. And-
1: right. Here is one: the president has the executive power, and that normally has included the law enforcement power. If he just declared a policy of only arresting Democrats right. for crimes, right? Right. Of course, the president and his administration have the right to arrest people who violate federal laws. But if the president were to take the that 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 aspect of execution and just use it in flagrantly illegitimate ways. There's nothing in the Constitution itself that prohibits him from exercising his discretion that way. At the end of the day, the fallbacks are impeachment and election. Right. So uh, the other argument that, that Dershowitz,
0: Dershowitz makes is that using foreign policy for personal partisan gain, yeah. there's no limiting principle there. You can't figure out. It happens. Uh, it can't be impeachable because you can't articulate a principle or something along those lines. It's been a while since I read the piece. Yeah, I think that's just batty, right? I mean, forget whether again. Both of us are pretty skeptical of whether Trump should be impeached for this, right? I think that's a prudential question. Mm-hmm. But the idea that no use of foreign policy under any circumstances for personal partisan gain could ever be considered impeachable is just, I think, remarkably dumb position.
1: Yeah, I'll say. Listening to these initial reports about uh, was it Colonel Vinman? Yeah his account, you know, reading what he's, I guess, said, that he, he heard what the president was trying to do with Ukraine, and it made him uncomfortable, the idea that foreign policy was being leveraged in a way to go after the president's political opponents. I have sympathy for that view. At the same time, I also tend to think, who are you to say? Mm-hmm. You were just somebody in the administration. Ultimately, the president was elected to do our foreign policy. So I'm even a little squeamish with the idea that people inside of administration are going to second-guess a president's foreign policy and try to elevate it up into impeachable offenses. You can see that happening under all sorts of circumstances. Trevor um, On the other hand, Congress asked his opinion. And he gave it. That's right. Yeah.
0: He's not the whistleblower, right? So he wasn't volunteering it to anybody until asked, yeah. which I think is an important part of the defense for him. Right. That's right? true.
1: That's true. So no, no, I'm with you on this, that you can't rule out foreign policy maneuverings as being impeachable. I think Dershowitz is trying to reframe the debate. He's, he's demanding that a that bright lines be drawn between mm-hmm. what's impeachable and what's not. And I just reject the premise of that approach. It's not our system and to even concede that much just concedes it into the sort of the lawyer's game. Right. Because there aren't bright, bright lines here. It's it's the constitution demands more of us than that. Yeah, I mean if if
0: let's say that The president got us into a shooting war someplace for defensible reasons, but then kept ordering that the Air Force go out of its way to blow up all of the competing hotels to his own in that country. I'm open to impeachment on that, right? Um, And um, so what did you think of this argument that the White House's lawyers made that the president could not be investigated? If he actually did shoot somebody, because it's so funny, ten, five, three years ago when I was having, um, you lawyer people on here and talking about this, it was all just, it was such a jokey hypothetical and yeah. it really feels like the
1: universe is pushing us to the point where Trump is going to shoot somebody yeah. <laughs> to test this. Yeah. So this is a tricky one for me because the lawyer who made that statement, Will Concevoy, uh-huh. he's a good lawyer and a friend of mine and he actually represents an organization. I'm on their board. So I just want to put that out there. Old, I, old disclosure is always good. Yep, yep. Um, I have more sympathy for his argument than some people have. Here's how, uh-huh. what, what I took him to mean, that if a president shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, of course, the whole OLC memo, all of that precludes the Justice Department from – I mean, I don't know about investigating him. But he could, I guess, in theory, stop the Justice Department. Obviously, a state or local investigator investigation doesn't raise those same – Mm -hmm. Of Unitary executive issues. It does raise some fundamental questions about federalism, right? For the Mm -hmm. same reason that 200 years ago, the Supreme Court said states can't tax the Bank of the United States because the power to tax is the power to destroy. The power to investigate a president, bind him down in investigations and take up all of his time, that could, if abused, be an extremely potent tool in the power of of people in a state to undermine the national presidency. Mm -hmm. So I have some sympathy... With the argument, the thing is, I think what the argument leads us back to. If you, if, if the argument is right, the president can't be investigated by the states. It just brings us back to how important impeachment is, right? Because that's the escape hatch to all this. If we get into this ludicrous scenario where the president is shooting people on Fifth Avenue or the equivalent, we'll then impeach him and get him out of office, Mm -hmm. so that none of these these sort of structural constitutional arguments are relevant anymore that's why impeachment is so important and that's why the door has to be open for impeachment and things like this that prevents us from this question of the president not being investigated for shooting people mm. you just make him not the president anymore
0: right but what if he shot someone in international waters
1: right <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right or you know the supreme court just had a big argument over the, the, the Puerto Rico's place in our government it has to do with their their, their finance commission. So maybe the president has to go shoot people in, in, in Puerto, Puerto Rico. Rico. Yeah. I mean, well, the, the, by the way, the response to my hypothetical is, well, what happens then if the president is in office, right, uh, with with at least one house of Congress controlled by his party? Doesn't that make him bulletproof, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the answer is no, we have to count on the, the people in his party to do the right thing right. for the sake of the constitutional order. I mean, I think that is the key. We avoid these ridiculous hypothetical scenarios by having the prud- prudential sense among office holders to back us away from the precipice mm-hmm. right and and not just I mean, sort of
0: we would like to think that in our country voters would punish congressmen and senators who voted to protect a president who had just murdered someone
1: on Fifth Avenue yeah but it's not just the voters because <laughs> we have to wait at least 2 years for an election sometimes right right, right. um so it requires more than just the threat of the voters. It just, it requires statesmanship. Sure. sure, this, sure. Is, this is, you know, you and I talk about this. So much of the Federalist, everybody's familiar with, or lawyers are all familiar with the structural stuff. Ambition versus ambition. The courts have neither force nor will, but merely judgment. But like 20% of the Federalist is about those virtues that make all right. this possible. And this is one of those moments. Right,
0: right. It's also one of those moments where you got to talk about one of the greatest shirts that's made out there, and that's made by Untucket. Ever wonder why traditional button-ups look so long and baggy? That's because they were never meant to be worn that way. Untucked shirts were specifically designed to be worn untucked. I actually really do love the shirts, and I've spent a considerable amount of my own filthy lucre on these garments. Uh, they're really comfortable. They make you look like you meant to have your shirt untucked, and uh, they're particularly good for looking somewhat presentable when flying, which is always an issue for me, because I always feel like I got to, you know, my parents, when I was a little kid, made me put a Blazer and tie on whenever I got on a plane, and I always feel like looking like too much of a slob on a plane is bad, particularly if I get recognized by somebody. Um, but at the same time, I don't I want to be comfortable, and they're great for that kind of thing. Um, have you been frustrated with shirt buying in the past? Well, Untucket offers some incredible opportunities for you. You can go online, you can go to one of their many stores. You can try it on in person in one of Untucket's 50 stores or just go to untucket.com to get started. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. You can save 20% on your first order by using my code, Dingo, at checkout. That's untucket.com, promo code, Dingo. We thank Untucket for uh, uh, sponsoring the Remnant podcast, and um, I really do uh, sincerely like their stuff. Okay, so let's do a little punditry here. I just wrote an L.A. Times column. I had to update it because of this Vinman stuff. Um, I'm ninety percent, well, depending on how you define it, somewhere between sixty and ninety percent persuaded by Andy McCarthy and my friend Rich, Low- my friends Andy McCarthy and Rich Lowry, who have been talking on on the McCarthy Report podcast and and also in some columns by Andy that Trump messed this up. I mean, first of all, the merits of what he did was bad, right? But he messed this up politically because he, by going to the position that there was no quid pro quo, which there was, um, and I'm willing to fight anybody with sticks who thinks that that there wasn't a quid pro quo at this point, um, but also that the phone call was perfect, what they did was he basically implicitly conceded that if you could prove there was a quid pro quo, that would be impeachable. And... They made they elevated the status of or the transgression of a quid pro quo so high yeah. and the burden of proof so low that it was almost guaranteed to lead to this and the the smart play which I wrote about is you know or well andy what Andy will say is, yeah, there was a quid pro quo it's pretty obvious there was a quid pro quo The evidence already is pretty overwhelmingly, and as a former prosecutor he's like. All of this testimony is going to be backed up by all sorts of notes and documentation. And, and right. so there's a quid pro quo. Right. Admit it and just say it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. Yeah. I think, and I agree with Rich on this, I think that politically what Trump needs to do is go one step farther and apologize. Just say, look, in retrospect, I see it now. It was a mistake. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That gives Senate Republicans something to defend. Yeah. But if the, if the standard is the phone call was perfect... And beautiful. And beautiful. And there was no quid pro quo. You were giving your own party no place to go um, except for all this process nonsense.
1: You know, the way you frame it reminds me of the same mistake Democrats made at the outside of the Russia investigation, basically saying there was collusion. It must have been collusion. This is all about collusion. And then things get messy and you realize they've set the bar so high for themselves that it's hard to get out. I mean, I guess I agree with that diagnosis. But one – I mean, that sort of logical argument isn't going to stop Trump from just moving the goalposts to a logically inconsistent second position. Mm -hmm. And second, Trump's not going to apologize, right? That's – I mean, you're the politico. I'm the law-talking guy. But I – but that's his whole shtick is he never, ever apologizes, never admits uh, that he was wrong. I'm sort of baffled that that Rich and Andy, who are friends of mine also, would – would even suggest that sort of thing.
0: Well, I mean, Rich is the one who's talked about a lot about apology, and apology is also just sort of the thing I've been harping on for a long time. Yeah. Clinton, oh, but he, but even admitting <clears> that he was wrong, right? No, that's problem. Which is, as someone who's less less supportive of Trump than either Andy or Rich, yeah. one of the reasons why I feel relatively liberated to give this advice is I know Trump will not take it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, but that's the thing is that the smart the smart place to go where the smart Trump defenders are going, yeah. the, the guys who have some, you know, some integrity but are also think impeachment would be bad and want to, you know, make yeah. the case, the best case that they can intellectually honestly for Trump is to say, yeah, there was a quid pro quo but it's just not impeachable.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a Bill Clinton move. Yeah, well, so Bill
0: Clinton... People At first, he says there was no... Right. Relationship. And then that was he untenable. walks it back. Right. Yeah. And then he says, I did it and I'm sorry. Yeah. And people all of a sudden, that allowed the whole move on thing to happen, right? Because then you could say, look, he admitted it was wrong. He admitted it was a mistake. But are we really going to put the country through impeachment? Yeah. And you could do that with Trump where Trump could say, look, I mean, in theory, he could do that. Say, look, in retrospect, it was a mistake. I, I see why people are upset about it. He'll never admit he made it, did anything wrong, but like, and say, I'm sorry for that, blah, 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 but this this really doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. It's certainly not a year before an election. Yeah. And I think a lot of Republicans would be very, particularly in the Senate, would be very comfortable to say, look, he made a mistake, but it's but it's, it's not worth impeachment. That is a thing that Republicans can go out in the hustings and say. Yeah. They can't say the phone call was perfect. They can't say there was no quid pro quo, because there was a quid pro quo, and there's literally no spoken string of sentences longer than three words that Trump has ever uttered that can be called perfect.
1: Yeah, Some people are saying that the president, not only was it good that he tried to get a quid pro quo, but he was required to because he is obligated to take care of the laws are faithfully executed. And so yeah, the laws... The Greg against... Jarrett. Yeah. Nonsense. Yeah. And it's, 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 again, it's buffoonery. But there is something to this that if he were to say, listen, I was too casual in what I did, too glib. The fact is there is a real corruption problem in Ukraine. Our aid is – our support is contingent upon it in some port. It's, I, I had it within my power to make this an issue because Congress made it an issue. He could very quickly complicate this in mm-hmm. a way that would give Republicans – you know, A little cover. A little cover. Yeah. That's right. But we're not getting that. Yeah. And so like – I mean I should be clear. I think what he did was impeachable. Yeah.
0: I think he did it. It's just a prudential question of whether you're going to do an impeachment right before an election, and I think right. reasonable people can disagree on all that. I do have a question, though. Like, the 25th Amendment stuff was always nuts, right? Just because no one ever really read the 25th Amendment. The only thing that people actually knew about the 25th Amendment was that scene in, like, Air Force One. <laughs> um, and it turns out the 25th Amendment was a crazy complicated way to remove the president for, like, three weeks. Right. But let's say for the sake of argument that, you know, because the the... The Trump defenders are arguing that the Ukrainian server ask, mm-hmm. which was clearly part of the quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't deny that. They think that that's, that's sort of the Federalist position is that the um, this was his duty to get to the bottom of the 2016 election, right? But if you actually look into the server thing, mm-hmm. it is, you know, nuttier than a pool party at Mr. Peanut's house. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Let's just let's just say it's like even crazier for the sake of you know in arguendo as you people say. Uh, let's say that he didn't ask about the DNC server, which is supposedly hidden like at like the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Indiana Jones somewhere in Kiev. Let's say he asked about the radioactive basset hound yeah. that he desperately needed to get. Is that? Evidence for an impeachment? I mean, like, let's just say he asked for something truly crazy that people understood was crazy. Would that be evidence for an impeachment? A lot of people, lot of people would say,
1: "Oh, he's just asking questions." <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that—that—that's yeah, that's nuts. That's nuts. And the Twenty Fifth Amendment. I just opened it up here in my handy-dandy Ilya Shapiro pocket Constitution from Cato. Um, I mean, the Twenty Fifth Amendment says that you know the president is unable to discharge the duties and or the powers and duties of his office. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't say what the inability is. Yeah, actual. Dementia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was one of the concerns about Woodrow Wilson, right? That after his stroke or heart attack, stroke, he's basically yeah. incapacitated. Um, yeah, I suppose that outright craziness rises to it. Does the server conspiracy theory rise to that level? It's nuts. It's the kind of nuts that passes for question-raising mm-hmm. these days. So I don't know if it, it gets us there. Yeah.
0: No, That obviously, that is not going to settle the day, right, yeah. even though I think it is. I mean, just the more you look into it, yeah. it's it's sort of like, you know, the the fact that Trump— you know, people are slipping Trump garbage from, like, Gateway Pundit and Breitbart. And, you know, the reason why the president of the United States— Said it was okay to betray the Kurds because they weren't at Normandy. Yeah, that came from like a Kurt Schlichter column. Yeah, you know, if,
1: if the Twenty Fifth Amendment applied to America at large, we would obviously exercise the Twenty Fifth Amendment against the country. Yes, yeah. yes, there were many people I want to do Twenty Fifth Amendment. Uh, but you know, one thing though about the president and this quid pro quo, I do think we need to step back and remind people all of this questions at the margins of president at the at the how am I trying to put this. Things that for a normal president would be kind of pushing the boundaries. President Trump doesn't get that benefit of the doubt because of Lock Her Up, Mm. right? He made this part of his campaign that he was going to go after – he was going to threaten his political enemies. And all of his fans sort of rose up and they loved that line. But what they – you know, and they liked the president because he was so outside the box. The problem is – all the conventions of deference that we afford presidents and the space we give them to use their presidential power, it's all contingent upon our vision of what a normal president is and what lawyers sometimes call a presumption of regularity. Mm-hmm. Um, president Trump having smashed that box on his way into the office, he and his supporters can't really be offended now when the rest of the system doesn't treat him like a normal president, right. doesn't give him those benefits of the doubt. Right. That's why we need conventional – statesmen in office so that we can trust them that, you know, if they misspeak when they're talking to Ukraine and they actually are interested in corruption or some far-fetched theory that they just want to ask about, that we can kind of step back and trust this isn't the president just wielding these powers to punish his enemies. Mm-hmm. The president gave all that up before he was even in office. He and his supporters can't complain now that the, the all those buffers for presidential power seem to have evaporated. All right, a couple of quick
0: rapid-fire questions. I'm going to let you go. The announcement that the Durham decision is now a criminal, mm-hmm. D- Durham investigation is now a criminal investigation, mm-hmm. people are all over the place on the significance of that. My understanding from talking to various people is that it's much less than it appears, but I could be wrong about that. What did you make about it? I've, I've been so underwater, I haven't followed this at all, okay. so I don't know. All right, yeah, so basically, I mean, you, that the, it changed from a administrative thing to a criminal thing, which yeah. could just simply mean that somebody lied to the FBI, which is not good, but right. we saw lots of that in the Mueller thing, and it didn't get to the core questions. Of yeah, I just yeah. don't know how to read it. And so the other thing is you hear a lot of senators say, I mean, the one thing that they really love about the situation that they're in now is they get to say, hey, look, I'm going to be a juror yeah. in the Senate trial, so I can't really comment. Yeah, And then when they can comment off the record, they're like, they say some interesting things. So, how accurate do you think that that analogy is? Is in the in the in the 18th century, I guess jurors were capable of asking lots of questions or
1: something like that. I mean, yeah. is it is it really a, that analogous to a juror? Do you think? So, I've gone back and forth on this a little bit actually. When I'll say when the Senate first started voicing criticism, Senate Republicans first started voicing criticism of how the House was going about its business, and there was a resolution floated to criticize the House. Some people said. The Senate shouldn't – some of the president's critics were saying the Senate shouldn't prejudge mm. what the House is doing. They need to wait. It's not their job to tell the House how to do its job. They need to wait. And I sort of said at the time, no, maybe it's good to know how the senators view these things. Well, then these senators really just flipped everything on its head by taking the precise opposite approach and saying, oh, wait, no, we're jurors. Therefore, we shouldn't say anything. And so like everybody else, I kind of rolled my eyes and said, oh, Right. I don't know, though. There's something to be said for this. On the one hand, if the if members of the Senate wanted to give guidance to the House, since it's all going to wind up in the Senate anyway, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It also isn't a bad thing for statesmen like senators to say, we're going to withhold judgment on these things until it actually arrives to us. The problem is kind of like the presumption of regularity. So many members of the Congress on both sides of the aisle have so utterly sort of forfeited mm-hmm. the the appearances of statesmanship. That I guess the answer to your question is I would love that to be the genuine answer that senators right. are, are taking this as jurors and are withholding judgment. That would be great except for the fact that just days ago senators were saying whatever they wanted mm-hmm. about the House's process. Right. And so I, I, that's not much of an answer.
0: I, don't, I mean I think it's, it's a politically convenient answer. Yeah. But I guess my question gets more to – I'm going to cite a really obscure legal authority here. But I remember – on an old episode of Quincy with yeah. Jack Klugman, where he had—he he was not a lawyer though; he was a medical examiner. He was a medical examiner, but he was a, he had jury duty. Oh, and he started asking questions of the witness himself. Yeah, and at first, like the defense or the prosecutor was all pissed off about it. He says you don't understand. This is a common. This is a right of a juror to ask any questions that they want to ask, and blah 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 blah. And it's always stuck in my head for some reason. Clearly, you know, because it's been forty-five years since I've yeah. seen this, or forty years. Is that true of jurors? Can they ask questions? Do they have to put it through the judge? And my point is: is it yeah. actually technically? Is it the is the Senate more of a tribunal or a is is the jury the best analogy thing? Yeah. Just in a strict terms, the way the founders intended it. The best part is when you find out that Rob
1: Long actually wrote that episode. Of <laughs> um, I, juries were much different once upon a time. Juries could nullify. You know, juries had much more leeway in nullifying the law. Mm-hmm. In the same direction, judges oftentimes were much more aggressive in getting engaged in things. So it's, it's different in both ways. I honestly don't know the history of the jury. I'd say when we talk about the Senate as a jury, sometimes we do need to re- remember it is just an analogy. Right? right At the end of the day, it's not a jury. It is a Senate. It's just fundamentally different. The House, they're not... This is the point I think you and I talked about on the last time I was on about a piece I wrote for commentary. The House... Needs to remember sometimes they're not actually prosecutors. Right. They're acting like prosecutors, but they they are actually a house. and need to behave like members of Congress in terms of transparency. Right. And, like, and process. It's like, it's like Nancy
0: Pelosi's grand jury analogy.
1: Yeah. It's an analogy. Right. Exactly. But they're actually not a grand jury. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. And so we could we could sort of reason however we want from how a jury acts and compare it to the Senate, but we can never get past the fact that at the end of the day they're senators. Right. And they're talking about all these things already. And again, a lot of them wanted to talk just days ago about what a bad job the prosecutors would be, uh, frankly, if they, if they really were a jury. A jury, the rules that would limit a jury from prejudging guilt would be the same as the rules on a jury prejudging the prosecution. Right. And senators haven't had any qualms about prejudging. Many senators have not had any qualms about prejudging this prosecution. Uh, if they want to be real jurors, they should act like real jurors. All the time. Okay. In so, this. last question then. Um, yeah. Let's
0: say they prove a quid pro quo. I, my personal, I'm not predicting this, but I think it's much more likely than our political climate is dealing with right now that that transcript that they put out is not a real transcript. Right. And there's, you know, Trump has this thing where when he wants you to believe something. He makes bold declarative statements over and over and over again in this overcompensating way. No collusion, no, you know, blah. He does that kind of stuff because he's trying to imprint an idea in people's heads. And he's very shockingly, dismayingly good at doing that. He has said over and over again, this transcript was perfect. We have the best stenographers. It is verbatim. He kept saying verbatim, verbatim, verbatim. Why is he saying that so much, right? And, and particularly when you look at all these ellipses, particularly like after the cloud straight thing, which is weird, yeah. is it because he wants people to believe that that's the actual transcript because the actual transcript could be actually worse? Regardless, let's say that it, something, some major shoe drops and the House impeaches and it goes to the Senate. What do you think the best precedent long-term would be for the country and the presidency to impeach and remove, to impeach and leave him in.
1: And when you said a quid pro quo, you mean a quid pro quo to go after Joe, Joe Biden. Biden? Yeah, Joe Biden being the his, pres- his political opponent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for me. I think that's the Senate has to remove him for that. Mm-hmm. Um, our political system, our Constitution vests immense prosecutorial power in the man who then also runs for office. And that's one of those red lines or, as he would say, a red line in the sand Mm -hmm. that we just can't cross, which is giving the president truly unbridled power to wield political and diplomatic power against his opponents. That would cross into territory that would be truly nightmarish. And so, yeah, that would be, I think, worthy of and should should be removed for. Yeah. Okay. All right. Adam White, um, AEI's official law guy. Okay. Um, Can I tell you a bit of trivia. Yeah, you know where I wa- where I watched the the last Senate impeachment trial from? Hmm. The West Wing. Did you really? I was a West Wing Clinton intern. Really? I think my, if I remember correctly, my first day on the job was. in— Did you snap your thong at the president too? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, he snapped his. It was very weird. Um, no, I had a, a. I was very lucky to have a great job in the core of the West Wing, just answering you know phone calls from Bob Novak or uh-huh. whoever. But I, th- I think my first day on the job was the first day of the Senate impeachment trial. It was amazing. Really? Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was, and it is interesting to. See, I mean, it's a cliche, but seeing. How, I mean, I came obviously at the very end. It was the trial, but the way that from the inside you could see how the impeachment process and everything had just drowned out in an administration. Yeah. And the sigh of relief when the final vote happened, and then President Clinton had his State of the Union, very triumphant State of the Union address. Yeah. Um, you do really see, even from a very limited perspective of an intern, how dangerous the power of impeachment is because it can just destroy the administration that was elected by yeah. people to do things. Um. Anyway, I just want to throw that out which there.
0: Which is sort of tragic given how much this administration was getting accomplished well, these tr- days. Well, it,
1: yeah. <laughs> we got Baghdadi, which is good. We got that's right that's right and we've got uh supreme you know judges to confirm yeah yeah, yeah that can still happen all right my friend uh, great to
0: have you here and um, people can find you your stuff all over the place just go to AI they got the links to all the stuff that you're doing of late and we'll be happy having, having you back soon see you again soon so always good to have Adam in here I feel I feel a little dirty a little little just unfaithful, not having um, Ilya Shapiro back in to do more law stuff, but – and I'm sure I'm going to hear from him and his followers about all of this, but
2: uh, – Well, you definitely will now.
0: Yeah. And in fairness, Adam did briefly mention Ilya and his pocket constitution during the show. So uh, where to go from here? Most exciting news of the week. I know we're supposed to be celebrating Baghdadi, uh, the ca- the kill- the killing of Baghdadi. Although apparently there's now some like conspiracy stuff because we haven't seen pictures of the body, which I think, if the body was at all presentable, probably would have made sense. Like we did see pictures of uh, Uday and Qusee and Saddam and Bin Laden, right? Did not we see a picture of Bin Laden dead? I can't remember now.
2: Oh, Bin Laden. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember.
0: Yeah. Um, but the real exciting news about it is is what a good dog that was and that the dog is okay. And I love that they will not release the dog's name because it's still classified. I assume that's to protect the identity of the handler and the location of the handler and not the dog himself because, you know, I mean, what going to get nasty email from people. <laughs> um, now who's being naive? Um, but, uh and um, I'm a big fan of Belgian Malinois, which this dog clearly was or is. Um, so I don't think that I don't think do- that dog should have to pay for its own kibble for the rest of its life. Um, I'm very very pro military working dogs. Um, and um, anything else that we have to uh, discuss, catch up on, um, complaints from listeners, anything? No.
2: No, our listeners have had zero complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't even say it with a straight face. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they may have complaints, but I don't really... Do we need to address them?
0: Uh, maybe not on this episode. I, for one, am a servant of our listeners, and I care deeply about their complaints. Um, oh, this is this is something fun. Um, uh, first of all, people continue to listen to the, the Mike Gallagher episode. It keeps climbing up in the charts as an all-time favorite, our ha- our Half-Baked Ideas episode. And I was at Marist College last week for a speech, and I had dinner with some kids from, like, the college Republicans and whatnot. And one of the kids told me that he used I, a couple ideas from that podcast for his senior thesis um, uh, in poli-sci, which I thought was kind of cool.
2: What, was he supposed to redesign the government or something?
0: No, I mean, he, I think what he mentioned was the... Uh, he was an v- avid, avid remnant listener. But he, I think it was actually my idea of the um, uh, the speaker running for election rather than um, just being appointed from within the House. Uh, but he mentioned something else <coughs> as well. Excuse me. And, uh, and then yesterday, I just got back from a speech at VMI, which was really just an unbelievably impressive bunch of kids there. Um, they were from a lot of the different... ROTC programs around the country, a lot of kids from VMI, and um, uh, except for the Naval Academy because for some reason, VMI always schedules this big conference that they have during Naval Academy finals, and apparently there's something going on there. But I did not know that the Naval Academy, I'm sorry, I did not know that VMI and Washington and Lee are basically on the same campus.
2: Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I
0: mean, it was weird, like the GPS from my hotel in Lexington is beautiful, at least this time of year and that whole drive was beautiful. I really loved it. But um the GPS it takes me and I, I plugged in Marshall Hall where this thing was going on and it took me onto the Washington Lee campus and I was like, what the hell? I thought this thing was at VMI and then turns out that like you just cross one road from the Washington Lee campus to the VMI campus, which is kinda cool. And apparently they don't socialize or interact very much kiki at kiki. all. Um and I stayed at the Robert E. Lee Hotel, which I, I feel if you want to stay at a hotel named the Robert E. Lee Hotel, you should probably do it sooner rather than later, <laughs> um, the way things are going.
2: Well, VMI, yeah. where Stonewall Jackson was from, Yeah, there was a whole battle fought there.
0: I tried not to touch on any of those issues while I was there. I actually um, I have an uncle who went to VMI. Um, I mean, he passed away a long time ago, but my, my mom's twin brother. Went to VMI. Um, anyway, um, we have some exciting stuff coming up. I don't know what I can tell you about it quite yet, but um, thanks to everybody who's been listening. Thank you for the reviews. If anybody out there is interested in advertising on the Remnant, we would love to hear from you. Um, we are actually going to start building up our own sales team at the Dispatch. And, um, you know, one of the things that we think we actually offer is um, we have a pretty great market. We have a pretty great audience of sort of influencers, hill types, uh, media people, kind of people that a lot of a lot of companies are try really really hard to reach. And uh, coming in January, you'll be able to subscribe to all of this stuff and for for actual money. But for now, everything is free. And we really appreciate the support and the feedback from everybody uh, that we've gotten for everything that we've done so far. And uh, that's about all I got. I will see you next time.
2: In space, no one can hear you scream. Go ahead then. Okay.
0: Um All right. You ready? Mm -hmm. Yep. You got your little constitution there. Always. Um (laughs)